It's so good to be together. Um, Hispanic yummy. Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty great phrase. Um, somebody make a t-shirt out of that and, and give Pastor Denise a cut. Um, I'm excited to continue our sermon series. If you have been with us, you know that we're in a sermon series uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And that those sets of verses give us a really powerful inside look to the first followers of Jesus, how they did it, how they lived for Jesus and what their community looked like and felt like. And we're continuing that series today. And so if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go to our website because we've been journeying really essentially in the first verse. And by the end of this series, we'll touch on so many things that are happening in the other verses. But this is such a rich passage of scripture that has so much here. We're going to continue where uh, we have been. And today we're going to talk about a very important aspect of the life of the first followers of Jesus. Critical. I really want to invite you to pay attention with your whole heart. I do believe that God has a very important word for us as a church. Let's read scripture. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people. We, we enter into this time together with expectation that you would meet us. We want to encounter you, your presence, your truth. We so desperately want to hear your voice. So Lord, speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts, cause us to hear, to understand the word of God and to be changed as you reveal Jesus to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You know, one of the things that I realized I take kind of great pleasure in is asking people what they do for fun. I think it's because so much of my life feels way too serious. Um, and so I actually really love to hear like, oh, what do you do for fun? Because chances are it's something that I'm not doing. And so I get curious. I kind of live vicariously through people. I think the other reason, too, is because I think we can argue safely that as New Yorkers, we are overworked, we're stretched, we're exhausted. And so I kind of love the moment of, of what, what I see in people's eyes when I ask them, hey, what do you do for fun? Or what's something that gives you life and restores you? And I hear all sorts of answers, and perhaps you could resonate with some of these. And so as I say these things, I want you to kind of go to your happy place and, and picture and, and identify what's the thing that brings you life. And so some folks will say, oh, pastor, all I need is some sand and some waves and that's all I need. And they look real happy when they say that. Some folk, man, you know, all I need is a book. A book and an empty living room with no one calling my name. That's typically the mothers that say that. No one calling my name. Or some folks really love holidays. Some of us, just the mention of Christmas. Like, oh, you get all warm inside. You notice that there's stores that sell Christmas stuff all year round? I mean, I'm really pro-Christmas. Jesus, we celebrate that. But that's a little extreme, you know? Just it, July is not a time to buy ornaments. But I digress. But Christmas, for some folks, like, you get, you get lit up. You're like, oh, that's a, that's a special time. You feel whether it's vacations, holidays, birthdays, Activities, some folks like, man, just give me a day to hike. 
I just love hiking. You, you, have you ever met someone that loves hiking? How do you know that they love hiking? You don't have to ask. They tell you. And so they tell you. They, they're, they're ready for it. They have the, the gear on. Are you going hiking? No, but I might. You know, and so they're always ready. Uh, it's their happy place. It's the thing that gives them joy and delight. I want you to imagine whatever that thing is for you, that trip, that day, that event, that practice that gives you amazing joy, that makes you feel alive, that brings goodness to your life. And what if you could take all of those things, put it in a blender, and have a smoothie with all of it? Imagine if there was one thing that could make you feel warm inside, rested, joyful, that you feel seen and known, that it brings good to the world. If you could imagine that, then you actually are close to understanding one of the most important words in the scriptures, and that is the word fellowship. Fellowship. Can you say that word with me? Fellowship. In the Greek language that the New Testament was translated from, we get this word fellowship from a very powerful word called koinonia. Koinonia, it's honestly one of the richest words in the scriptures. And interestingly enough, um, the only time that the gospel writer Luke, who wrote the, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the only time he uses it is in these verses that we just read. And he uses it to describe the life of the, commun the communal relational life of the first followers of Jesus. And look at what he says. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so he lets us know that one of their high priorities, one of the things that they were intensely devoted to was fellowship. What is he saying by that? What does that mean? What, as we dig in, what, what are the implications for us as we try to process this idea of recovering discipleship. That's the title of our series, and that's the prayer in this series that you and I would come to the scriptures with the thought of, is there something in my discipleship? In other words, my following of Jesus, that when I compare it to how they follow Jesus with me, is there something that I have to acknowledge has been lost, that has to be recovered? When we say it was there, but it's not here, it's not with me, this needs to be recovered. That's, that's what we're doing during this series. We're asking that question. We all want to follow Jesus, and we want to follow Jesus the way they did. We don't want to leave anything out. Is there anything that needs to be recovered? But additionally, we've been processing the fact that for the last two-plus years, we have all experienced one of the most insane seasons of life where it, the, our world was turned upside down. And during this time, many of us, lost certain aspects of our following of Jesus. Certain rhythms have been disrupted. Certain priorities are no longer at the forefront. And so as we look at our own lives, look at scripture, is there anything that has to be recovered? And one thing to wrestle with today is do we have to recover fellowship? What does it mean to recover fellowship? What is fellowship to begin with? In the original language, it's, has, it's, it's used many times by the Apostle Paul in his epistles, but this is the one time in the book of Acts. And so we have this compositive understanding of what this word means by its many uses in other places in the New Testament. But also, it was not a word that was created by Christians. It was a word that existed outside of the Christian community. So there was ideas associated with it. And so here's some things that we should bear in mind when we read that word fellowship, because it's like a diamond. It has all these facets, all these layers to it of meaning. First thing, a fellowship is an association. People just associating together, connecting. There's also the idea of communion. So it's a bit deeper than just kind of like a casual association, but there's an intentionality, there's an intimacy, there's a, a deep knowing of one another there's close relationship, 
Fellowship communicates the idea of close relationship. Now, the introverts in the room are saying, how close? How close? Close relationship. This is the idea of fellowship. But not only that, many times when the word koinonia was used, there was implied the sharing of goods. And so people would experience koinonia when goods were shared, when people's physical and tangible needs were met. And so koinonia, in many ways, when you walk through the lobby today and you saw all of those things that you all have brought in to help the asylum seekers, you walk past koinonia in the, fel in the fellowship hall downstairs, rather, in the hallway. Koinonia, the sharing of goods. But it's not just limited to an association, communion, close relationship, the sharing of goods. Back then, when you heard the word koinonia in the first century, you could easily think that you might have been hearing someone talk about a special kind of meal. It was a very common practice at that time where people would have meals intentionally to have communion with the deity. And so this was a meal, and over the meal they were intentionally, every course, every bite, every moment was an orchestrated like ceremony in essence where they were intentionally saying, we will have communion with the God. And so fellowship has all these facets. But let me give you something else to be mindful of. Back then, it was quite common to have religious meals and religious gatherings around food. But what was also common is that those meals were very exclusionary. Not everyone could attend. You had to be of a certain class certain ethnicity. You had to have a certain degree of education often. And also, typically women were excluded from those gatherings. In fact, one of the things that was quite scandalous about the first followers of Jesus was that women were involved deeply in all aspects of this community. And so for them at that time, they were like, what's going on there? That seems crazy to us. Normally when women and men are mingling, not great things are happening. What's going on there? Because when you, when you guys gather as men and women, women are not being used. They're not being abused. They're not being mistreated. They seem to be regarded with some, with, with some uh, like joy, and, and they're valued members of the community. This was groundbreaking. And so when, when the first church had koinonia, it stood in stark contrast to all these other expressions of koinonia that were existing around that time. So yeah, there was sharing of goods and communion, association and relationship in other places, but it didn't look like this. When they did it, the rope was off. Everyone could come. This was groundbreaking. The divisions that kept the world at bay didn't exist for the early church. So you have to imagine, during these moments of koinonia, there were very likely people who were Roman sympathizers, who would be at the table and say, I don't think Caesar's that bad, you know? We need law and order, right? This is, you know, Rome is not that bad. And then there were people at the table who said, no, we need to destroy this empire brick by brick. It's kind of like when you have people that watch CNN and Fox hanging out together, you know? And so, like, you, all these explosive, divergent views, they were at the table together. I'll give you another one. In that time, since it was open to all, imagine there's families being seated next to women that are exploited in the sex trade together. There's people that are incredibly educated, which was a very small percentage of the world then, that were literate, next to people that could barely speak and definitely didn't know how to read. Rich, poor, people that had criminal past with law-abiding citizens and an array of ethnicities. This is all happening when the first followers of Jesus would gather. They were having fellowship, koinonia. And this was radically different than anything that the world had seen up until that point and since 
then. Even today, it continues to be a boundary-breaking experience when the people of God truly come together. It defies the boundaries. It defies the categories. It breaks down walls. Inherently, when we come together and we gather at the foot of the cross, the things that naturally divide us no longer have power over us. Koinonia was different by these followers of Jesus than any expression of it that was seen at that time. And so the question we should ask, why was it different? What made their koinonia, their fellowship, so radically different than other expressions of it at that time? And the answer is the most simplistic yet profound answer. It's the Sunday school answer. If you've ever taught Sunday school to kids, 99% of the questions asked, the answer is Jesus. When you ask the kid in Sunday school, all the questions, it all leads, who loves you more than anybody? Jesus, you got a sticker. It, it, it's simplistic but profound, and it's true. Why their koinonia was so different is because for the space of three and a half years, the apostles watched Jesus create koinonia. Everywhere he went, he brought people together. They came around his table. The least likely people were found around Jesus. You know what a thing it must have been that if you felt you were of a certain status and, and, and had a title in life and a certain clout, that if you wanted to get to Jesus, you were going to have to walk through a crowd of prostitutes, of women, of people that society didn't regard highly in order to be around Jesus. Only Jesus could do that, break those barriers. He, everywhere he went, he created koinonia. And so naturally, as his followers are trying to continue to follow him in this moment, they emulate and do the very thing they saw Jesus do. But I'll go further. One of the reasons why this was so different and so powerfully distinct was because what we're seeing here is the love and grace and spirit of God deeply change a people so much so that the very basic, natural, everyday things like conversations, meals, connectedness were radically different because they were being profoundly transformed. You know, one of the things that I've, that's always like rubbed me the wrong way is when I've heard this expression, they'll say like, um, this religion is a way of life. Christianity is a faith. You ever heard that expression? And, and what they're trying to get at is that other religions will give you detailed instructions on the basics, rudimentary, everyday things. Like they get granular like what you should wear, what you should eat, whereas Christianity seems to be this big umbrella of belief, that you believe this big idea, and it's a profound idea, and that's where, it's, where, where it ends. But that's actually not accurate, because after you believe this amazing good news, God's intention is for that belief, that faith, to trickle down into every nook and cranny of our life that it influences even the most minute, basic interactions, decisions, expressions of life. In other words, by believing Jesus, the way we eat, who we eat with, how we relate, should be radically different and distinct because our belief in him is changing the totality of our life. There was this moment in history called the Welsh Revival and in Wales, England, there was, in a span of a couple of years, it's estimated over 200,000 people came to faith in Christ. Now, to put that in perspective, the neighborhood I grew up in, Sunset Park, many censuses ago, had 150 documented people that lived in just a couple mile radius. Imagine an entire neighborhood like Astoria or Sunset Park, 
over the course of a couple years, all of a sudden, everyone is following Jesus. Imagine that. That's what was happening in Wales. Everything began to change. Life began to change. How people did business began to change. How all things began to change. And, but yet there was this one thing that stubbornly remained. And it's the way horse breeders would break horses in. If you've ever seen how horse breeders typically tame horses, it's a violent process. It's not for the faint of heart. You have, like, your heart bleeds, like, man, this is, this is tough. The horse is not enjoying this experience at all. And but through, like, intense, like, really overpowering of the horse, in many ways, whipping, all these things, the horse eventually gets tamed and listens to the commands of its master. So, in Wales, their commands were riddled with expletives. So it wasn't just, come here, horse. It was bleep-bleep-bleep, bleep-bleep, bleep-bleep-bleep-bleep-bleep, horse. You know, like, it, it, was, it was intense. So imagine, these people are following Jesus. Their life is being transformed. They're experiencing the renewal of God in all aspects of life. 200,000 people together with them. Everything's changing. And then they show up and they interact with the horse, and it's almost like, all that transformation is put aside for a few moments as they angrily and vilely communicate to a horse. So guess what they did? They went through the painful process of retraining the horses so that they would respond to commands that didn't have expletives. And I know what some of you are thinking is like, man, is that really that big of a deal, Chris? You know, like... You know, who doesn't bleep bleep at a horse every now and then? You know, like so, some of you may be like, ah, that sounds a bit religious and legalistic. And did they really have to do that? That's not what I want to argue. What I want to present the fact that it mattered. That even something as minute, as minor, as like, in, like tangential to their life mattered. That they said, we don't want God to not be factored in, central, informing that moment, that practice. That's what we're seeing in Acts 2. We're seeing a transformed people having all of their life transformed, even so that the way they gathered and had meals together and, and were intentional in their relationships was all being informed by Jesus. And how could it not have been? After seeing Jesus eat with the wealthy and the poor, after seeing Jesus protect women and not use them, after seeing Jesus extend grace and hospitality to the outcasts of society, how could they not create a community that had koinonia at the forefront in this radically transformative different way? And here's something that this calls us to. It says they were devoted to prayer, to the word, to doctrine, and to fellowship. And so for the first followers of Jesus, this was not a secondary or tertiary matter of importance. This was not fellowship or koinonia was not something that they, I'll get to it if I have time. Or I got to make sure these really important things and then the scraps, the leftover, Koinonia will get that. No, it was, they were devoted to these things as all were highly important priorities. Koinonia was part of how they were formed as followers of Jesus. It was a spiritual discipline. It was just as vital and important as and integral as prayer. Now that, that may sound like blasphemous to some. Like, wait a second. Hanging out and being together and having intentional relationship is on the same level as prayer? I, I invite you to help me to read this differently. But it, it says they were devoted to all of these things with intentionality. And if that's the case then what fellowship, what koinonia provides to us 
It provides a litmus test to determine what we really believe about Jesus. The way we intentionally foster relationships, the way we gather as a people, is our true report card as to what we really believe about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been on various church websites. Most of them have a what we believe tab or some place that communicates some type of doctrinal statement. Whether it's light or extensive, almost every church has something to that effect. It's a marker. It's a definer. People want to know, where do you stand? Are you in or out? Where do you where it locate you? If we're comparing the first followers of Jesus to us, if we're asking what needs to be recovered, what was in place then and what needs to be in place now, the absence of koinonia in our time is a huge failing grade for us. This is something that desperately needs to be recovered. Because here's the really convicting reality. That many of us only attend church. We don't do koinonia with the church. I'm going to say that again. Because all the roaring amens, like some of you didn't hear. <laughs> For those in the back, I want to make sure you heard that. Because response was so strong. It's like an MSG right now. Say it again for everybody to hear. Most of us have only attended church. Not all of us have experienced and contributed to koinonia. And I will be the first to admit as I've been studying this passage, preparing to preach, I have been so convicted. Because when I looked at my heart, this is the honest truth. Prayer was up here. The word was up here. Koinonia was down here. Now, that's, that's a lot of reasons. These are my personal reasons. One, I'm deeply introverted. It's a real funny joke that God is, has with me <laughs> that I have four kids and I pastor a church and I'm involved in a lot of different things. I'm swimming in a sea of people as an introvert. I just want the shore to come. Get me under a palm tree, Lord. <laughs> Over the years, that capacity has grown um, and so... In the early days, man, it was, it was like bad. Like when I would reach my limit, the introverts know what I'm talking about. You reach a certain limit, and it's like, I must go. Because <laughs> inwardly, you're like, I will die if I have another moment of small talk. Please, small talk is tiny talk right now. I don't ask me about the weather and the sports. And yeah, yeah, ah. And so, but I think the other reason, honestly, Probably pride didn't allow me to admit that all these years, I came to Christ when I was 14, I'm 42, that all these years of following Jesus, I wasn't carried by Jesus alone. I was carried by koinonia. You know, our, the church I came to Christ in, before I joined this church, I didn't know that they had been praying and fasting for several years that God would rescue young people in our neighborhood because it was during the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s, and there was a lot of hopelessness, a lot of uh, high high school dropout rate, a lot of crime, and so they were praying that God would rescue young people, and they spe specifically targeted one of the worst blocks in our neighborhood, 49th Street between 4th and 5th. They were people that would line out of buildings to buy crack and heroin the way you see people out of lines like for a brunch spot, you know, like insane crime and violence. 
They targeted this block and they would serve and love and bless the residents and do all sorts of like gospel presentations. And this one young kid came to Christ, Peter Carrion. Peter Carrion to date is one of the most introverted, deadpan people I know. If you, if you never met Peter Carrion and you just listened to my voice right now and you walked into a room, didn't know he was there and he started talking, you would say, Oh my gosh, Peter, because this is how Peter would talk. He'd say, hey, Chris, how are you? That's his cadence. I don't know why. I don't know how. And so Peter would do these, these Bible studies in his house, and he would leave. He organized it. It was in his house. And we're like, hey, Peter, where you at? He's like, too many people, Chris. Like, Peter was a teenager. He comes to Christ, has this powerful moment of conversion, and Peter led about 30 of my friends to Christ, one-on-one, just sharing the gospel. Overnight, our church had a youth group. And Peter, for whatever reason, we never asked him. During the fast songs in church, we don't know why, he never clapped. But he always held his hands this way. Not like this, even like this. So literally in our church, there was 30 young people like this. (laughs) During the fast songs. No joke. And then for whatever reason, we never asked them. During the slow songs, Peter would cross his arms, sit down, and put his head down. So during the slow songs, 30 young people. just (laughs) Peter loved us. He cared for us. He would follow up. Say, hey, you didn't see you at church. You want to hang out? This is an introvert. It was painful, but he did it. He showed up. He pursued us. Koinonia. I have this other set of friends. Frankie Ochoa, he's Ecuadorian. I was actually really celebrating how diverse my friends were. I didn't, like, honestly, that never mattered to me. They were just good people. But Frankie was Ecuadorian. Marty Raymond was Trinidadian. Me love me Trinis, you know? And so um, he's Trinidadian. Um, Jason Matero was Lebanese. Uh, and he was like, he was a mix. He was Lebanese, Puerto Rican, and Polish. Um, forgetting somebody. Gosh. I hope they don't hear this audio. They'll kill me. You forgot me, Chris. Um, and we actually, uh, you know, we held a prayer meeting that went on every Saturday for about five years. And we would just gather in, in one of our apartments, and we would just pray and seek God. And a lot of those folks that were in that prayer meeting are still serving God till today. And I'll be honest, in somewhere in my mind, again, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's like, no, it was just Jesus and you, Chris. That's how you're here. That's how you made it. As I reflect, it was like, no, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Koinonia. Those moments, we prayed together. We sought God together. But we were also deeply in each other's lives. I'll give you one embarrassing moment, but it showed the extent of our relationship. And so there was this young lady and I, we started talking, dating. This was a couple years before my wife. Um, and I knew I shouldn't have pursued this relationship. Here's why. At that age, I was not ready to take a relationship seriously. And like, in other words, like I, if, it, if it couldn't grow to marriage, it couldn't grow beyond that. And so it's just like, where was the intentionality? Where was the path? And so... I'm entering into it not as serious, but she was entering into it as more serious. I should have been more mature at that time, but I wasn't. So one day we're hanging out, and she said, hey, come to my place. I shouldn't have done that because it's just her and I by ourselves. And even if nothing happened or we didn't cross any physical lines that we shouldn't have because we're not husband and wife, the appearance of it. And also, I'm not thinking of what's best for her. I shouldn't put her in a dangerous, precarious situation. But I'm there. We're like 10 minutes in. This was pre-Netflix. So we're watching TV. And we're just talking. 
and I'm, I feel like I'm a grown man. And then the phone rings. She walks over, says, hello? It's for you. Like, for me? (laughs) Grab the phone. That's my friend Frankie Ochoa. Says, hey, man, I know you may not want to talk to me after this. I know this is super awkward. I know you're a grown man, I'm a grown man, but you know you shouldn't be there. And he's saying this while she's looking at me with this inquisitive look like, Who's this grown man that I have in my house that's getting a call from his friend? You know, like what, like, like this babysitting call. And, uh, and I was like, uh, yeah, okay, thanks, man. You know what to do, Chris. I was like, yeah, I know I want to hang up right now. And so <laughs> he cared. He was invested enough to find out where I was, to track down a phone number to potentially offend me, that he was babysitting me. Koinonia is intentional community where we journey with each other. This is what was happening in the early church, and as I studied this, I had so much repentance and said, God, it wasn't just you that carried me all these years. It was koinonia. Communion, fellowship, being seen and seeing others, sharing life together. This was such, we're talking about recovering discipleship, and it's almost like we want to make sure that if, if, if discipleship was bread and it was baked one way in the first church, we want to bake it the same way now. And what we're identifying is koinonia was a key ingredient. And so we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus and say we're baking the same bread that they did. If koinonia is lacking, it's not the same. It's something other. It's inferior. It's not as robust. It's not going to be as transformative. And what koinonia being at the center of these followers of Jesus, it tells us a lot about what it actually means to follow Jesus. It, 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 the, the ingredient of it actually helps us to explain and understand some of the key mechanics and vital aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. And the first thing it tells us, and we really need to own this because it's so easy to reject this reality, and that is that faith in Jesus, being a disciple, is not an individualistic enterprise. It's not something that you could fully and maximally do as an individual, isolated, ultra-independent, disconnected, the, with a I don't really need anybody kind of mentality. I've always been on my own. I, I pick myself up kind of vibe. Our faith is not individualistic. It's communal. It, it intrinsically involves others. You know that so much of the Bible is, is, you can't obey it if you're not in community with others. You can't love one another if one another is not in our space. If we're not with each other, together, being intentional. I think one of the reasons we push against this is because, unfortunately, so many of us have been shaped to think of following Jesus as merely attending church rather than doing koinonia with the people of God. If we're honest, I think most of us would, in our hearts, come to a place and say, man, I have definitely attended church, but I haven't always done koinonia with the church. I haven't let people in. I haven't put myself in a position to be invited into things. Our faith is not individualistic. I know for some of us right now, as, as warm as your heart may be, it's like, man, this sounds amazing. Who wouldn't, you know, this sounds like, like Cheers, that song. You know, everybody knows your name. Who wouldn't want to be a part of some, something so beautiful like that? Yes, but you're probably thinking... I have no time to give. This sounds like something else I have to add to my already full plate. 
But actually, it's not the case. To do koinonia, fellowship, it doesn't mean adding more to your plate. It just means inviting people into what's on your plate already. It's as simple as that. If you're going food shopping, invite someone in. If you're going for a hike, invite someone in. Not me, because I'm not interested, but <laughs> I don't like hiking. I bless you. If you're going to go on a trip, invite someone in. If you're going to go for coffee, invite someone in. If you're going to go pray, invite someone to pray with you. If you're going to study scripture, invite someone pray to, to study scripture with you. And in particular, seek to invite people to the table who need to be invited. Because otherwise, they don't feel welcomed. In my neighborhood, they did this family fun run. It was a really special thing. All these families were doing like a 5K, or, and they were running through the neighborhood. And they had this moment where they invited people with special needs to be a part of it. And it was so incredibly moving. Our daughter, Brielle, she has Down syndrome. She's two years old. And oh my gosh, when she ran with people and everybody was cheering, people with Down syndrome and, and, and without, all celebrating. It's like this is a moment of koinonia where people are included and invited to the table. I think we all could probably say I have felt isolated or rejected or not included at a certain time in our life, right? Someone has done that to us. We felt that. And yet, how often we miss opportunities to invite and include others. But man, when we open, see the first church, they didn't have a rope around Koinonia. The table was open. When we invite people into that, it's a, it's a statement saying, I recognize my faith is not individualistic. I own that. I see that. The other thing that Koinonia communicates to us, and I hope you and I could really capture this, is this truth. That Koinonia represents something that God alone can do. Where he takes the ordinary things of life and makes them holy. He makes them sacred. What do I mean by that? When koinonia is happening, a meal is no longer just a meal. It becomes a sanctuary. When koinonia is happening, a conversation is not just a conversation. It's communion. When koinonia is happening, needs are not just being met and exchanged. Love is being shared and communicated. And God is present. The ordinary becomes holy. You could experience God's presence just as much over coffee with someone than as we do in prayer and studying scripture. In fact, if the only ways you're experiencing God's presence is in prayer and studying scripture and you're not experiencing his presence through koinonia, you are starving yourself. There's a feast waiting for us of Jesus that is only reserved for people who take the bold, courageous step to enter into koinonia. Baggage and all, scary feelings and all, church hurt and all. You go into that space because you know there's aspects of the presence and person of Jesus that I will be starving myself of if I don't go into that space. In this season, what would it look like for us to not just attend church, but to do koinonia with the church? What would it look like for us to recover this crucial ingredient of discipleship? Because the, the truth is you could attend almost anything. As intimate as a small group is, you could attend a small group and not do koinonia with a small group. 
no longer attenders. I don't want to just attend things. I'm invited to all sorts of things. I don't attend things anymore that won't allow me to have real moments of connection. I don't need a big stage. I don't need, want reality, real connection, real friendships, intentional community. That's what we're being invited into by Jesus. And this is not just for our nourishment alone. You know what a powerful statement we can make? For some of you, if, you're, if we're honest, some of our struggle is, I want to tell people about who Jesus is, but I am scared. I don't want to have those conversations. That frightens me. Do you know that you could tell people who Jesus is and never say a word, but you could be telling them by entering into koinonia, where they would see through your actions and say, what is this? You're hanging out with people you shouldn't be hanging out with. Society told you you should reject each other. There should be no commonality, and yet you're around the table, around this person called Jesus. A new humanity is being expressed right before the world's eyes. In a hostile, divided world, Koinonia declares the living God is present. It declares the gospel, the good news. Some of you didn't realize how spiritual a cup of coffee could be, how lunch with someone, how a call, how checking in, how going, doing errands together, how studying scripture. These things are revolutionary. They change the world. They challenge the status quo. They declare the gospel. Koinonia. As the worship team comes forward, I want to close by inviting us to take, to consider taking some very clear, practical next steps. See, the danger in a concept like this is that for most of us, we're like feeling really warm and fuzzy inside. Like, man, it sounds great. Yes, I want to be a part of that. That sounds great. But if we don't do something intentional to create it, to be a part of it, it remains a warm, fuzzy feeling. And it doesn't become reality. What's the next step that you can take to create koinonia? I'm going to make this as, as practical as possible. Are you ready? I'm going to set you up for obedience. It's like, yes, I just want to hear things. I want to do it. How many want to do what Jesus is calling us to do? then you're welcome. I'm about to give you some next steps. First step, next week when you come, you say, I didn't know I was coming. Yes, you are. You're coming next week because you're part of Koinonia. You're going to be devoted to it. Yes. When you come next week, I want you to seek out somebody that you don't know. I'm giving you a week because I know some of you got to muster that introvert courage. I know. So this week you're going to be praying. Some of you are sweating right now. It's like, oh, fine, you know, but no, next, next week, find somebody you don't know, greet them, and exchange information. Simple. Hopefully when you exchange information, that could lead to getting together over, over coffee or tea or, or a, a meal or just going for a walk hearing each other's story, getting to know each other. Again, if, you, if your choice is to no longer attend church, but to do koinonia, fellowship, that would be revolutionary. The next thing, this is super practical. The end of the month, we're going to have this great meal. Hispanic yummy, remember that? It's going to be a Hispanic yummy meal. <laughs> I'm having too much fun. Um, what if we took the idea of koinonia literally said, when we have that meal together, we're going to have it in the presence of God. He's going to be with us. We're going to take time to see each other, to learn each other's names, to, to hear some of our story, to connect. I know it makes for a longer Sunday, but if you want to experience koinonia and not just attend, it requires some investment. 
Third, visit a small group. Our small groups are underway. It would be a phenomenal opportunity to experience a measure of koinonia to just be part of a small group. Visit, no strings attached. Our small groups, the culture of it, is very high invitation. We're not asking you to sign a dotted line, give us DNA, you know, like, we're not gonna, you know, like, haunt you. Just come, get to know some people, hear some names, pray with others, connect. Lastly, this next month, we're not gonna have our extended worship and prayer because we're gonna be at the retreat. Woo! Which, if you didn't sign up this year, lesson learned, right? Next year, the moment registration opens, do it. Let's hope a story I don't play with the retreats. It's sold out really, really fast. Next month, December, when we have extended worship and prayer, come and experience Koinonia. Stick around. If you come to the first service, come back. Just over the next couple weeks, these practical steps would push us further down the road in creating Koinonia, being devoted to it and recovering that. Could I invite us to stand? we worship, the prayer team is in the back, and at any given moment you could slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer for the words that were shared or anything that you might need prayer for. Could I invite us, if you feel comfortable doing so, could we raise our hands in the presence of God? Could we worship him? Jesus, meet us now. We don't want to just attend church. Want Koinonia, meet us. You radically included us at your table. We want to do the same with others and for others. Let's worship Him. <laughs>